Let's make real estate for everyone. Welcome to the Addy Podcast. At Addy, we're on a mission to make every human a homeowner. On our podcast, we share real estate investing best practices, industry news, and advice from real life experts. Keep up to date with what we're doing at addyinvest.com. I'm Katie Kernahan, and today, on episode number 12 of the Addy Podcast, we talk with CEO of JB Knowledge, James Benham, about the current innovations in construction technology and what lies ahead for the construction industry. James has led JB Knowledge to become a premier provider of technology solutions for the construction and insurance industries, with clients across North America, the Caribbean, and the Middle East. So let's get into the future of construction technology. Welcome, James. Howdy, howdy. Um, so to kick things off, uh, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about yourself and your entrepreneurial journey? Sure. Um, born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, my dad uh, was a serial entrepreneur. He started and sold a, a few companies uh, in the, uh, in the uh, oh, a few different industries, but largely manufacturing. And uh, so I always wanted to be a business owner. Uh, ran a, my first business, I think I was 12. I ran a lawn service company cutting grass as a 12 year old till I was about 16. And then the, uh, the this thing called the internet came out It commercialized in 93, uh, from the national science foundation. And, uh, so I started a, um, a consultancy when I was about 16, teaching people how to get on the internet because it was actually hard at the time and, uh, made some decent money, thought about not going to college and just keep doing that. But my dad encouraged me to go. So I went to the world's finest Institute of higher education known as Texas A&M university. Uh, got a got a degree in accounting there and a master's in information systems and uh, just fell in love with with Texas and with Texas A and M. Did a couple of uh, internships with Price Waterhouse Coopers as a security guy. He used to get uh, paid to break into systems and fix them, and uh, and then decided that really wasn't my path. And so I went to my dad. And I went to one of my best friends from high school who is an exchange student from Argentina, and I said, Hey, let's start a software company. And this was back in um, April of 01. So we started JV Knowledge. Uh, it's been 19 years. I'm still running JV Knowledge. Uh, we have 220 employees uh, between the United States, Argentina, and South Africa. And uh, we build software. Uh, we have products and services. So we sell time and we sell widgets. We sell our advice as well. We're consultants. And uh, we have a media offering. We have two podcasts and a roadshow. Uh, so we do a bunch of things all around technology solutions for the business world, all around uh, construction and real estate. So really, really involved in that market and really involved in insurance in particular and in how insurance and construction and real estate intersect because there's a lot of intersection between construction and insurance and real estate. And so we've been doing that for quite a while. We built a really cool bidding platform called Smart Bid in 2006 and uh, we're very fortunate to, to get about a quarter million users on that. And we sold it to a large public company two years ago. Uh, we also have two other products, Smart Compliance, for certificate tracking for real estate companies. They track all their tenants and vendors. And we also have another product called TerraClaim that manages uh, self-managed work comp and property claims if you, if you self-manage your claims. So we, we really uh, got to dive deep on this. We're self-funded. We never raised a round of funding. Uh, we used our own money to start the business and used our profits to grow it. So I don't know anything about VCs uh, other than uh, how I've interacted with them when I sold my product company. Um, but uh, we never raised a round. Um, I'm, a, I'm a pretty hardcore militant believer in, uh, in self-funding uh, as much as you possibly can. I know it's not always possible, but as much as possible. And so that's really kind of been my, my journey. Uh, 
we, we are militant adherers of EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System, for running our business. We love using EOS to run the business. And uh, big fans of Lean for making our software, Lean Manufacturing Principles. So that should uh, kind of explain it in a nutshell. Awesome. And so you mentioned you had two podcasts. Maybe you could just tell us a little about those for people who wanted to maybe tune into them. Yeah. So one's called The Content Crew. And one's called the InsureTech Geek, and uh, Content Crew's been running for 220 episodes for about uh, five years now. And we started it a long time ago, five years ago, because I, there was just nobody talking about things in construction and real estate tech. There was just wasn't the discussion wasn't present, and so we decided to start a podcast to say we, because I went to a couple of buddies of mine in the industry, and we started it out, and it's really turned into something. We passed 600,000 listens. Uh, we've had 220 episodes. We have a lot of fun every week. It's a weekly show. Uh, talk about all things construction tech. We interview uh, tech companies from around the uh, around the, the CRE space. And then uh, Insure Tech Geek is all about uh, risk. You know, mitigating, managing, controlling risk with technology. And so we geek out about policies and claims and loss control and really, really important stuff uh, every week as well. It's now a weekly show, and I have a really great co-host there, Rob Galbraith. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. I've, I've gotten to speak at over 400 conferences. I get to speak at a lot of conferences as well and um, get to uh, get get to travel the world talking about uh, technology, which is really my favorite topic. I, I started writing my first line of code when I was 11, uh, wrote my first good size application when I was about 16 and um, then started writing apps you know, through college and then was the primary programmer. Uh, today, JB Knowledge has over 100. 70 software engineers, so I don't do any code writing. Uh, I mean, I run the company, I sell, and uh, we, we build more tech. That's really uh, what I do, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm an unashamed sci-fi uh, Star Trek, to be specific, and um, yeah, not Star Wars, that's historical fiction, Star Trek is science fiction, and um, I have a lot of fun building tech and, and certainly talking about it. Uh, the podcasting is a, a great way to reach a lot of people. That's awesome. And so you mentioned that you have staff, um, you know, in Argentina and South Africa. Just out of curiosity, how have you handled the transition with the pandemic? Like, have, was it easy yeah. for you to kind of move to the work from home? And those areas, I think, are in higher, like, stricter lockdown than, than we are. They are. Yeah, Argentina and South Africa are on stricter lockdowns. Uh, it's been an interesting migration. I have a really amazing team. Uh, really, really great people all over the world that work with us. And so they, they responded very positively. And that's one thing I've tried to, to really maintain is, hey, look, we, we still have work. We still have a job. Um, our clients are still paying us. Let's do the best we can possibly do with what we've been given. Uh, we executed work from home mid-March, uh, right around when, when it really hit all, all over the place. We said, you know, we're working from home. Our IT team pulled it off in about 24 hours. We thankfully had made huge investments already. And, uh, and, and laptops and cloud-based solutions, you know, we, use my, we already used Office 365, we already used Teams, we already had our own cloud-based ERP system. So no one really depended on local resources uh, in the offices. And so there was um, a lot of work done by the IT team to pull it off. Um, Argentina and South Africa do have far more restrictive rules. Um, for about two months, my staff in Argentina weren't allowed to leave their house. They literally couldn't go on a walk outside. And so just mental health, I think, has taken a bigger toll than almost anything else. Uh, when you can't go for a run and you're used to exercising every day, um, I led a lot of workouts. I would post my favorite workout of the week online, and I had to remind myself that 
while I was allowed to go run around my neighborhood, my team literally couldn't walk out their door w without getting arrested. They, in both South Africa and Argentina, they were arresting people who were out without a license, without a permit, um, and not going to the grocery store. That's the only place you were allowed to go is directly to a grocery store and back. So um, very, very different response to this, right? Uh, I'm in Texas, which is a very, very um, hands-off government. And, uh, you know, it, it, the differences were pretty stark between uh, the different places. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, that's cool that you were able to post workouts and stuff to keep them in cage. It's interesting to see, you know, what all the different companies are doing to support mental health. Oh yeah, we did a bunch of get to know you exercises on Teams. We did video chats. We did a company wide Zoom calls. I mean, you know, anything we possibly can do. Um, as people started being allowed to leave their houses, uh, it, the, the tension kind of eased off. They could go on walks. They could go on runs. They could go on bike rides. We, you know, we stepped off that as as they started getting some more freedoms. We didn't need to be so involved, but uh, it it was certainly a. And it's certainly, it's going to continue to be a challenging time for everybody. Um, but it's an exciting time to be in technology because, uh, you know, what we've been preaching for years and years and years and years is that you need to have a cloud-connected workforce. You need to be not dependent on on-premise computing. You had to have the ability to be portable. Um, and, man, every one of those points got driven home with all of our clients. Uh, so it, 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 it was an, it's been an interesting time to help enable the, uh, a, truly a truly digital workforce. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so I want to get into all that stuff um, as well. But just up front before we dive into it, I'm just curious what um, pivoting towards real estate investing, like what, what's your personal philosophy around real estate investing? And do you own property, yes. funds? Like what do you, how do you think? Yeah, all of the above. So yes, yes, and yes. Uh, you know, as I got to know people who had been very successful in life and business uh, financially, real estate was always a very big part of their investment strategy. And especially, you know, the folks who had long-term wealth that they built, that they built and held that wealth, they didn't blow it, uh, invested heavily in real estate. And so that's something that I've been doing for a while. I'm a huge Dave Ramsey fan. So my first step was before I did anything is I followed Dave Ramsey's debt snowball. I paid off all the credit cards I used to start the business. I paid off all the cars. I paid off, and then I paid my house off. And that was probably about 13 years ago. Uh, you know, so I paid all of that off before the business really made any money. I just followed Ramsey's debt snowball, followed his envelope budgeting system, and as soon as I had money, first thing I did pay my house off. Right. So at least that asset is appreciating without debt. Um, you know, most people don't think through the fact that a mortgage doubles the cost of your house. A 30 year note doubles the cost of your house. So you really aren't making that much money. And in fact, you're generally losing, even if you deduct those, those, that, that interest on your taxes, you're still losing. And so, uh, that was step number one. My first real estate investment was paying off my personal home and, and every single property we paid for since then has been cash. And so that's something that we've done is we've really uh, been very, very intentional about being cash investors. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with leverage. People use leverage all the time. It's just not part of my investment strategy. Uh, so I, I started getting rent houses. I like residential. Um, I particularly like short-term rentals. Uh, so I've been an Airbnb host for a few years. Uh, I've got a few properties on there. And we like waterfront or our near water Airbnb and VRBO short-term rentals. The, uh, the beautiful thing is, uh, aside from the fact that you can depreciate the homes and you can get a nice tax deduction from your, your, your bonus depreciation on your house, we also like that you can use them, right? If they're not being used, 
that you've got a free place to go stay. Uh, you can give them to your friends and family. They have a free place to go stay. So there's a really beautiful thing about real estate, unlike many other investments like gold, silver, precious metals, stock market. You can't go stay in any of those things, but real estate is really beautiful because if it's not being utilized on a short-term rental, the other thing I like about short-term rentals, you have quick turns, frequent cleaning and a lot of inspections. And so you're always, the maintenance on the property is a lot easier to keep up on for us, as long as you have a good cleaning crew and maintenance crew. And so certainly I've been, been pretty active in that front in Airbnb. I'm always looking at, a, I want a good deal. I don't buy in really overpriced expensive markets because your, your, your revenue per night on short-term rentals doesn't go up proportionately as much as it needs to uh, as it does with a lower cost property. So we look for nice Midwest markets. We like the Great Lakes. We like Texas coast, Florida coast, the, the Panhandle, not Miami. You know, so that, that's really how we invest. Secondarily, I like real estate investment funds. So I'm a big fan of Clarion. They run a, a, some really good investment funds as well. I'm a, you know, and, and that's what really attracted me to, to Addy when, when Steve told me about it was, the fact that you can really get in on, on, on fractions of an investment, you can spread your risk out and you can play in the real estate market. And so that's, that's um, been my strategy uh, for all along is to take the profits from software and invest heavily in real estate. Cause I am not a fan of the stock market at all. Uh, it is uh, the last few years that it's been highly irrational, not connected to reality, not connected to price earnings ratios. Um, I, I am not a fan uh, I, I really don't, uh, I don't like how volatile the stock market is and how disconnected from reality it is so much of the time I do like and real estate is so connected to reality. Uh, generally speaking, except for some asset bubbles, it can be really, really interesting. And so that's why I like, uh, playing in real estate and investing in real estate. Awesome. And just out of curiosity with the short-term rentals, how have you handled that? Like with the current pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> well, revenue took a hit. <laughs> so I don't leverage these purchases, right? So the, the, the difference is you don't, when you don't have a note to make, it's not a panic time, right? Uh, so that's uh, one thing that has kept my blood pressure down. Uh, secondarily, it's been tough dealing with the state governments in the United States. You know, we don't have a federal response. We have state responses. And uh, we have a lot of investment in Michigan. Michigan has been a challenging place. Their governor um, prohibited short-term rentals until three days ago. I can tell you this, the minute she allowed it three days ago, our, our rentals, the, the bookings went through the roof. I mean, yeah. it, was, it, was not a fat, it was not a slow U-shaped rebound on bookings. It was vertical. It was just straight like, we got like a dozen bookings in three hours. I mean, it was, a, you know, and I was like, yes, all right, we're back. You know, I mean, so it, it, that, that's good. I also went and used my own properties. So since no one was allowed to be in it, but owners were allowed to be in your own property, I went and used my own property. So that was nice. Um, and it was a time for us to knock out some maintenance tasks. So we used it to knock out a bunch of maintenance tasks and we cleaned the places up, placed locks, did some painting, you know. So we did some things that we were allowed to do. But needless to say, it had a huge impact, but here's, here's what's interesting about short-term rentals that I really like versus uh, hotels. Short-term rentals, it, when you rent a whole house out, you're still social distancing. So you know, in, in particular, when you're in a drivable location, not, i.e. not an island, uh, we're in Michigan, you know, Indiana, Illinois. I mean, you're, talk, you're talking about like 30 million people that can drive to our lake, to, to, the, to these lake locations 
and they can rent a house and still be socially distanced. So we had a huge request volume during coronavirus for people trying to quarantine at our houses. They wanted to leave Chicago and come quarantine on the lake. Uh, and we didn't do it because we were following the law. But my argument was, this makes no sense. Let them come quarantine here. There's no difference if they quarantine here or there. They're just desperate to get out of their own four walls. And they're willing to pay money to quarantine in someone else's house. I mean, I'm not kidding. So it's even with the beaches closed. But uh, the nice thing is we, we followed the law. We didn't allow it. It had a huge impact on revenue. Thankfully, that was April, May revenue, not June, July revenue. Because we make we yeah, we make eighty percent of the revenue June July August right, um, and so re, re, reservations are vertical right now, and um, I'm I'm really pleased with the the booking volume that we're seeing. Yeah, people are just biting at the bit for a change, probably. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, they're desperate to get out of their house. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess kind of on the thread of just along the pandemic and pivoting to the construction industry like uh, how, how have you seen this pandemic impact the construction industry in terms of like the social distancing health and safety what's it been like in the yeah. u.s well construction and real estate you can't talk about real estate without talking about construction that's what steve and i talked about on this too you know you have to talk about these two things together um you know you you build real estate then you maintain it and then you sell it right that's that's why we'd say construction cre uh construction so in general, you are looking at the largest backlogs we've seen since 2007. So construction companies live and die on backlog. Uh, that's the, the work that they've sold that they can't perform yet. And a huge percentage of our construction clients had multi-year backlogs. And we're talking about one and a half, two year, two and a half year backlogs. And so construction doesn't see an immediate hit when things like this happen. And so you saw every single construction association in the country, including the trade and labor unions. This is important to note that the, the unions representing the workers were also lobbying to get back to work. <laughs> so everyone's lobbying to get back to work. They all want to get on the job site. Turns out they have a lot of N95 masks. Uh, so they, they have a lot of PPE. They have PPE requirements already. Um, generally, there's a lot of working outdoors rather than indoors. Uh, and, and so we saw a lot, the companies and the workers all asking to get back to work. In the very few areas where it stopped, keep in mind, Texas construction never stopped. Not one day. Not one day. You know, the, the stoppages occurred in Boston, Philadelphia, some in California, but you're generally looking at um, the, the very, um, well, I'm, not, I, I, I'm trying to avoid politics in this discussion. So there were a small handful of areas that prohibited construction. Everywhere else, it continued because it was deemed a critical, and it is critical. You have to continue. If you don't complete a job site, the, the building's literally rot. You, you know this, if you have a half complete project, it is devastating. And so even though there's obviously going to be some changes in, in consumer demand and in retail demand and restaurant demand, there's gonna be restaurants that go out of business. We all know there's gonna be big shakeout. That's not happening right now because we're still running off stimulus money. The, the developers are going to finish their job because it, they already broke down, bro, broke ground. They're halfway through the project. They have to finish mm -hmm. because a, compl a completed asset is worth a lot more than a half completed asset. It's not just double. It's worth five times more. So they're, they're, they're working off backlog right now. Um, but we saw uh, definitively layoffs. Um, you know, you saw, you saw a lot of layoffs in, 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 in particular in areas where they shut construction down. It was pretty devastating loss of jobs. 
uh, for the construction business. I'm, I, I worked for a few different trade unions and, and it, it was, it was bad and, and it is bad for them. Uh, but as they've allowed construction to come back, those jobs came back instantly for now. Um, the big question in construction is going to be when the backlog's done being worked off, will there be more work behind it? Because uh, like you know, when we had Lehman Brothers collapse in September of 2008, it wasn't the backlogs weren't worked off until like late 2009. And that's when it really just, you know, nosedived the construction business. Right. And so it, like in Texas, things continue, but did velocity slow down just given the distance that it was required? Like um, you know, I don't have data on, on, uh, on project velocity. Um, I didn't witness, witness it anecdotally. I didn't hear anecdotal evidence that there was a velocity change. Uh, there are a lot of construction tech companies rolled out social distancing applications that I encouraged all of them to rename to social density because really they were just measuring the density of people in a given space. And so there's been a lot of work around that. They, they've had to, to re-gear their job sites, re-gear the way they do their meetings, the frequency of meetings, the type of meetings, go to all virtual, all the office staff are working from home. So the whole industry took a productivity hit because they had to push everybody to work from home and they had to figure it out. And the construction industry, unfortunately, because it spends the least amount of money on technology per dollar of revenue, the construction industry was, was one of the, the, the worst prepared for this. And so they had to do a lot of work to go digital, which really, really hit them on productivity or what you referred to as velocity. So you, you are seeing absolutely anecdotal, if not uh, proven evidence that project timetables are slipping right now. Um, there's a really, really big project going in, uh, in, you know, in, in my town and I was talking to their PM, uh, they're two months delayed and they, they directly blame coronavirus and largely not their local labor pool, but supply chain problems, getting materials there because the manufacturing facility that makes the product got shut down for a period of time. They couldn't get it to them. So it's really what I'm hearing from project managers that are calling me is that supply chain problems are causing the delay, not necessarily the local onsite labor. Oh, interesting. And so to solve that problem, have they been leaning into local suppliers? Uh, you know, re-gearing your supply chain takes longer than two months. I mean, you're talking about a substantial portion of building products and materials uh, for, for real estate are manufactured abroad and then they're imported. And so uh, you, you, have a, you have a really complex global interconnected supply chain, uh, you know, just simply picking it up and saying, okay, we're gonna manufacture all the jet board here locally. <laughs> where are you gonna get the where are you gonna get the raw where are you gonna get the raw materials to make that from? Because that's also mined in China. I mean, it's it, it it's a it's a bit challenging. I was talking to some guys that that make tungsten bits and you know they do tungsten carbide, which is really used in oil uh, drilling and drill bits. And I said, okay, well, how, how's it going with manufacturing? Like, We're fine, but we get all of our tungsten from China. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and I'm like. And so that's really the problem is it's, it's, we have a very global, very interconnected supply chain. And when the ships have coronavirus on them and then the manufacturing facilities do and they have problems and then, you know, I've never seen, I'm 40 now, almost 41. I've never seen this big of a shock to the supply chain where literally 7 billion people decided overnight they needed toilet paper in a lot of it. And yeah. like you have, you have these like crazy things happen that panic drives different buyer activities. And so then when, when you have Amazon 
who's beginning to be a big player in real estate and construction supply chain, right? They're, they really are edging into that space. When they have to stop non-essentials and then re-gear their supply chain, that hurts everybody, right? So uh, that being, so we just interviewed the CEO of Curry, who's a, a, a supply chain distribution guy for construction, uh, basically like Uber for construction materials in the United States. And he, he told me that uh, their, their volume's up, you know, so it, it, it's, um, it's going to take a while for everybody to ship, but we do see repatriation of critical manufacturing being on the horizon, both in the United States. I can't speak for Canada, but, but certainly in the United States, you're going to see people rethink their supply chains now that they've seen the weaknesses with offshore and Asian supply chains. Yeah, exactly. And so what about like pivoting into the technology side? Um, you know, you mentioned their construction industries are more antiquated, slower to pick up. Like, have you seen this, this being sort of forcing function into finding technology to support and how has that impacted your business? Yeah, sure. There's been a, a big push uh, to adopt technology that tracks workers uh, that can also be used after the building is completed uh, to track the actual building density. And that's uh, using a, both a combination of cameras and sensors. So we've seen solutions like Triax Spotter or SmartVid that analyze video, analyze photos. Jen does another one out of Israel that's making, making a big headway here. And what's really neat for those of you who care more about real estate and less about construction is that uh, these IOT and computer vision based systems are very useful both for the construction of a, of a building and the active operations and maintenance of a building, right? Uh, if you have an IOT network that tracks tags, then you can use those asset tags after the building's complete uh, to, to measure density and make sure that you don't have uh, a density problem. Look, social distancing, and building density are going to be with us. I mean, come on, let's be honest. They're going to be with us a long time. We're, we're, this is not a flash in the pan. Uh, like coronavirus isn't going to, now that it's mutated and it, and it goes after humans. I mean, the cold's a coronavirus, right? Yeah. So we've never solved the common cold. We've never been able to develop an immunization for the common cold. We've never been able to fix it. And the cold's a coronavirus. So do you really honestly believe we're ever going to be done with this? Like, I don't. I, I, think there will, I think there will be an end to this phase, but we're going to have to rethink how, how dense of interior spaces we're going to have. And we're going to have to rethink health and safety guidelines. And we, you know, this is forgetting the fact that we had a, and by the way, I'm not saying this is going to go on forever. This will have an end date. We will survive. The, the influenza pandemic of 1919 that my great-grandfather died in, my grandmother's father died of the flu and the Spanish flu epidemic. She, she told me about him and wrote me about that experience. It was horrific. It was way worse than this. And it ended, that ended too, you know? The, the, all things will come to an end. I'm a big deal, a big fan of the Stockdale paradox, Admiral Jim Stockdale, United States Navy. Um, you know, he said the key to surviving when he survived uh, being a POW in the Vietnam War was knowing that he would survive, but not assigning an arbitrary date to it. And so I think that's the key. Like, I know this is going to end, but when we look at buildings and the way they're designed, the way they're structured, we have to think about this on a go forward basis that that building design is probably going to change forever because now we have modern design principles being applied to social distancing and density calculations. And, and we're going to have, we're going to have to, we're going to have to rethink it. Right. You, you, the only constant is change. Yeah, totally. Well, and you think about all the confined space, like elevators and buildings and yeah. entrances yeah. to buildings, like how do you manage it given, you know. Yeah, and HVAC, 
HVAC and air filtration systems, uh, you know, you have, you have surfaces that can be uh, antiviral, antibiotic, uh, you know, surfaces. I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some really cool technology that's going to roll out that's going to help mitigate spread. Uh, you're going you're gonna to see hand sanitizer baked in a lot of places. We have a, uh, a big cultural aversion in the West to wearing face masks. And so um, there's going to be a lot of other things we're going to have to do since there's a lot of people who don't want to wear them. Um, you know, to, to, to mitigate spreading viruses, spreading germs. It was a bad flu year this year too, you know, by the way. Right. And it was a bad flu year last year. A quarter million people died last year from the, from the flu. Uh, so there, there's a lot we can do in building design. There's a lot we can do in real estate to uh, change design so that we can accommodate these type of events better in the future. And technology plays a really pivotal role, both in tracking density and uh, through computer for generative design and computational design tools, w one that every real estate developer should have is called testfit.io. Testfit.io. Um, Testfit is built by a team in Dallas, Texas, run by a guy named Clifton Harness. Amazing, amazing technology. And it allows you to permutate millions of times on potential building designs. It's geared for real estate developers so that they can run a million different options and have a thousand different uh, permutations of all the design of a building and the hallway distancing and the unit size and the yield and the parking lot design, all the things they pay architects hundreds of thousands of dollars to do. And it takes months. Uh, they can pay test fit thousands of dollars to do, and it takes uh, five or 10 minutes. And so you're going to using tools like test fit to rethink the way you build multifamily to rethink the way, like maybe we're not going to force everybody in an apartment building to go on one elevator or to go out one exit. Like maybe that's not a good idea. Right. right? And you know, maybe, maybe the way that we're going to build condos is going to change too. I mean, I think we have to rethink hallway distances, hallway widths, elevators, common entry and exit points. Um, and then the materials we use and then the, the, the air filtration systems, you know, at the leading edge of this in my house, I went in and I've replaced it with a super, super, super high quality air filtration system in my house just to make sure that if something happened that, you know, my, that my filtration system would be able to catch it. I mean, right. so there's, there's a lot we can do to, to make our, our real estate safer. And then what about technologies that, you know, you talked about driving some efficiencies um, in terms terms of replacing architects do like what other technologies are there um that serve a similar purpose i don't know like 3d printing or you know drones yeah. robots all this kind of stuff sure all of the above um boston dynamics rolled a great great tool out called spotter uh not spotter uh, spot uh spot the robotic dog that just rolled out spot 2.0 it's a it's a fully autonomous robotic looks like a dog um, and it, it walks the job site every day has collision avoidance it has computer imaging and vision systems on board and then you can put a laser uh, laser scanner on top of it so you can have daily as builts you think what a construction facility or what a building owner wants is they want to know what's being built what percent is complete so they only pay out exactly what is built every day right you don't want to pay more than has been built so if you're in if you're in real estate you should care about construction because it really dramatically if you have a 10 percent overrun on your building it's going to really change your IRR and your financials on your real estate investment. So they should be paying more attention to it. So there's really cool technologies like spot from Boston dynamics that allows you to have a robot uh, scan the job site every day. Drone technology has had a huge impact on owners abilities to monitor the progress of job sites, to calculate percent complete. There's software tools like reconstruct 
that take terrestrial imaging and aerial drone-based imaging to put together a comprehensive picture of what got built every day and what's on schedule and behind schedule and have the computer calculate that instead of a human so the owner can have a realistic picture of whether or not their building's on schedule or not. Imagine that. Um, there, there's some really, really cool tech coming out. 3D printing, Dubai. Like let's not let's not ignore Dubai. They have a mandate that by 2025, a quarter of all construction has to be 3D printed, and they're putting buildings on the ground for a third of the cost of the United of United States buildings because they're able to 3D print the concrete structure. They're able to 3D print offsite, assemble it onsite. The Dubai Futures Council is a is a commercial entity, an NGO housed in a 3D printed, the very first fully functional. 3D printed office building. It was 3D printed offsite in 17 days and assembled on site in two, 19 days of construction start to finish, one month, and they moved in. Wow. And it was built, it was built for a fraction of what traditional building costs. And so there's there's a real future in affordable office space, truly affordable office space, not what the government says. When the government says affordable, there, there. It's just, just, it's just blah, 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 blah. It's not, not affordable. It's them saying, because remember, governments make building more, more expensive by leveraging, levying huge impact fees and taxes on buildings. Huge, massive. I mean, I was on, I was a city councilor for six years. It was absurd how many impact fees they leverage on developers. And then the same jerks in the city council who would levy the impact fees the next week would bemoan the fact that there's no affordable housing. I'm like, well, you just drove the cost up 30%. And, and you, then you're upset when the cost goes up and you, you're claiming the real estate developers pocketing all the difference and they're not. They're just passing through all these taxes. And so real affordable housing comes from radical technolo technological change. Apis Core, who's building some tech buildings in, in Austin right now to Austin, Texas, um, completed last year a 3D printed smaller home, right? This is a couple hundred square meters, a smaller home yeah, in, in, in Russia in the middle of winter under a tent and they 3D printed it for $10,134. I mean, the whole house. It was like a one bed, one bath, little living room, like a little studio house uh, that for $10,134. So there's radical change coming down the pipe. It's just not necessarily, to, to quote one of my favorite uh, folks, uh, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And uh, it's just not evenly distributed. We, uh, you know, Fast Brick in Australia just got engineering sign-offs and certifications on their Hadrian X 3D printer that 3D prints using a, a proprietary concrete block and an adhesive. And they just got permission in Australia to start building homes with it. And, and their, cost, their cost numbers are radically different from a, a human-built um, concrete block home. And so how long do you think if you're going to take a guess that this stuff becomes mainstream? Well, it's already, it's already becoming mainstream elsewhere. Um, I, I would say it's another decade before it's mainstream here, largely because of government regulations to get past all the certification boards you have to get past here to be allowed to build something in a different way is going to take a while. So I'd say it'll take them 10 years to get through all the permitting inspections and certification process. But you know, Australia, uh, you're already starting to see homes be built. Uh, you're seeing local governments allowing little pocket neighborhoods to be built with radically different building techniques. Um, you know, so you're seeing it happen slowly. Uh, companies like Katera, who uh, raised about $2 billion. Unfortunately, they raised it from SoftBank. And if you know much about that, SoftBank's behind WeWork and SoftBank is getting decimated right now. But uh, Katera's goal was to basically do what Sears Roebuck did back in the day. Remember, 
Um, my favorite quote from Battlestar Galactica, this has all happened before, it'll all happen again. Um, Sears Roebuck used to be able to order a house and they would ship you a house in a box a hundred years ago. And then you would assemble it on site. That's called prefab. Katera is trying to do that for commercial structures and residential structures. And they're throwing $2 billion of soft bank money on it. And so I think that you'll see offsite and prefab make a huge, huge, huge splash in particular right now, because offsite and prefab are way easier to deal with social distancing and virus transmission. If you're in a manufacturing facility rather than on site, it's a lot easier to control that environment. And so you're going to see a big, even bigger push for offsite and prefab and 3D printing coming out of this. Uh, but Dubai is going to continue to show leadership in the world because there are governments behind it and the government's mandated that 25% of all buildings uh, be built this way. And you'll, you'll see continued progress in places like Russia, continued progress in places like Australia, and eventually Canada and the United States will weave through our bureaucracy and it'll be available in 2030. Right. Um, and like you've talked a lot about sort of the three B's of construction as big data, business intelligence, and blockchain. And so yeah. that'll sort of fit into the picture. Yeah, yeah. So uh, BI is, is really exciting because we're finally doing something with all the data we've been collecting. I mean, we've really been focused on 20 years for collecting data and processing it, but not actually analyzing it well. Uh, we used to write crystal reports. Remember that? Crystal reports may not. But we, we had all these reporting tools. BI takes it to a different level because you're you're building visualization around data to make it easily consumable. And then really good BI systems have their own machine learning and analytical capabilities where the system helps you analyze the data and look for, and this is why I always say the key to BI and big data, BI and big data and BIM and blockchain. Okay, when you combine those together, blockchain is, is immutable data storage, data storage that can't be manipulated because we know that real estate and construction is a low trust environment. People don't trust each other. Developers don't trust the contractors. The GCs don't trust the subs. Uh, everybody hates the architect and the engineer. The engineer, the architect and the engineer don't like the builders. Everybody's trying to sue everybody else. The last phase is the lawsuit, right? Like that's that's architecture, construction, and real estate in a nutshell. I love it. It's a crazy industry, but I'm in love with it. Um, in a low trust environment, you need something like blockchain where you can write solutions like Brick. Um, Brick is a solution out of Southern California where they, they incorporated blockchain into closeout documents so that no one can screw with the project data when it's done. That's important. So it's important to have an immutable ledger like, like blockchain. It's important to have um, big data. That's where you aggregate petabytes of data, exabytes of data um, in real time. And then to have a, a system that can parse through all that with machine learning. Uh, and, and that's really where BI comes into play, where you can have a system looking for two things correlation and causality. Just because something is correlated doesn't mean one thing causes another. And so really, really good BI systems, the one, the really good ones I'm working with, like SciSense is a really great one. And there's some aspects of Microsoft Power BI that are really good. They allow you to get in and, and tell the system, find correlation and then find causality. In other words, look for causality where I can't find it with my own eyes. And that's what really geeks me out because you're now going into a new phase of technology where you can say, I can, as a real estate developer, I can find out what really causes my projects to be late. What's the actual cause of project delays? What's the actual cause of my construction overruns? What's the actual cause of my building maintenance being 10% over budget? You know, cause if you have a really crappy builder, guess what? Your financials are wrecked for the rest of the life of that building. If you have a building envelope problem, 
you've got a really, really, really big problem, right? Because you're going to have water penetration, one, the largest, you know, one of the largest factors of, of cost and, and maintenance for, a, for a, a real estate investor is if you have water penetration into a building, if that envelope is done improperly, you're screwed. And there's a bunch of really cool tech coming out now in analytical capabilities using security cameras and drone imagery to watch the building while it gets wrapped and while you're putting that building envelope on to look for potential penetration points. So there's some really cool stuff coming out that will address the big, big problems for real estate developers. Like is the building leaning? Uh, is, that's, a, that's a big one right now in San Francisco. There's a leaning tower, right? Uh, is the building... Uh, built in properly is the envelope not built properly. So we have water penetration problems. I mean, th that's the big stuff that keeps real estate developers up at night because now you have a building you can't sell. And so there's some really cool stuff with, with BI and blockchain and big data that are going to solve the trust problem, the data aggregation problem, and the analytical problem all at the same time. Uh, and I, I mentioned some of the tools to you already, uh, Brick, BRIQ, um, certainly Power BI, SciSense, Tableau, um, and then you get into the blockchain side of things, uh, brick again on blockchain, but there's some other really good blockchain solutions. And there's so much cool stuff coming down. It's really incredible. Um, yeah. there's a lot of questions on the line. So I'm going to ask you one more before we pivot over to, um, people who have submitted the questions, but, um, what is your, if someone is moving into development or construction, like what would be your number one piece of advice or that be a piece of technology to look at or something to think about as you build your business? Um, what would you say to someone? The number one piece of technology or process as you build a business, any business? Uh, if you're looking specifically at development. Real estate development. Yeah. Um, I would have a really, really good uh, project management and oversight system. I, I think that um, there's an astonishing number of real estate developers that don't know how many properties they exactly have and what the condition is of them. Like, and they don't know where the plans are, right? Like, like you, you come to like these like really basic fundamentals. Um, so there's a, there was a startup that was purchased by Procore called Honest Buildings that did a really good job of building an owner centric management system that allowed you to manage everything about your buildings, right? The, the, the as built plans, the specs, uh, all the work lists and punch, like all the, the things related to owning a building, and a surprising number of real estate developers use Excel spreadsheets for this. So I would say, uh, first, get a really good meat and potatoes management system. That, that's now owned by, by Procore. It's called Procore for Owners. And it's a really good system just fundamentally to build and manage what do I own, what is it made from, who built it, and who are the contractors that work on it, right? Like these really basic, like really basic things, you know? So like, I think that's that's where I would start. And then I would go from there. Like, how do I, how do I monitor and supervise what I own? It's condition assessment. So then I would get into some condition assessment tools that they have. And there, there's a lot you can branch out to, but you ask for the single starting point and that's where I would start. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, so I think we'll turn it over to Steve to facilitate some questions from people on the line. Um, so just give him a minute. I have, Quite a few. Thanks, James, for doing this. Um, there's a handful of questions here kind of all over the map as usual. So I'll just hit you with them. The, the most recent one that came, or maybe this is a quick, quick one, but um, it was what's the cost of that spot dog from Boston Dynamics? Like, is it a, is it a monthly rental or is there a price you, you, you buy it and you own it? Or how does that work? 
Yeah, they they um, have not released pricing publicly, and you have to sign an NDA. And uh, I asked them to to go on the record and let me publish a price, and they won't. Um, you can imagine, like, there's a really really good robot right now that ties rebar for bridge contractors. It does rebar rebar tying is a really hard one to get. That that robot costs eight hundred thousand um, dollars. Spot is tens of thousands of dollars, uh, to my understanding, it's tens of thousands of dollars, but I, I didn't sign an NDA. I don't have the official pricing, but my understanding is that's roughly where it at. Most of these type of robotic solutions, like Sam the Bricklaying Robot, Sam the Bricklaying Robot by Construction Robotics will do large walls of brick. Um, what's really cool about Sam, it does the work of five brick masons. And what's really neat is you can load patterns. So if you're a real estate developer and you want to pattern your brick walls, you can literally brick your logo into the side of the walls automatically with using it like, like the computer's like a printer, right? Um, Sand the bricklaying robot, tie bot spot. You can, you can lease all of these things. So the other really cool thing is that United Rentals, who's a major, major provider in North America, is like they, they, you, they're starting to do lease rental programs of a lot of these robotic solutions through United Rentals. Uh, and United Rentals is great because they're, they're, they're nationwide, I believe North America wide, you'll have to pardon me, I'm not sure what their, their Canadian exposure is, but they've got some really great solutions that they offer. Um, they have a, you know, some augmented reality uh, robotic arms that uh, allow you to lift and, and do more work. So there's some really cool stuff uh, out there. The vast majority of it, Steve, is available for lease. Um, cool. it, you know, when you're so done with that, it, that's, it's done. Yeah, and that's how, you know, most construction companies and most real estate developers look at things at a per project financial basis. And so the nice thing is you can lease it by the project. And so it makes it a little easier to consume. And then if, you have, if you're not working for a while, then, you know, that's cool. what it is. Cool. Um, here's an interesting one. Um, how do you think parking lot designs are going to change to accommodate sort of the future and the carless world or maybe not carless, but, um, electric vehicle world? Like wh where do you think that's going? Yeah, I got to go to abundance 360 with Peter Diamandis a couple of years ago, and we spent a lot of time talking about parking lots. Uh, we talked about parking garages specifically in urban areas. Uh, if you think about the average car is utilized about 5% of the time. And if you take an average car and you make it, you put it on a car share program like Zipcar, or you uh, do ride shares where someone's driving you, or what Tesla is doing, right? Don't, don't lie to yourself. Tesla is building a network of chargers, a network of cars, a network of owners who can lease their cars, and then cars who can drive themselves. Like it doesn't take a genius to figure out that Musk is going to make a run at Uber and Lyft and, and offer his network of self-driving autonomous vehicles globally. Um, and so in the ultimate case, and Diamandis estimates that we'll have uh, a substantial reduction of people driving their own cars by 2025. Now, I would argue that's going to be in dense urban areas. Like in Texas, you're going to pry our trucks from our dead cold hands. But when you get to dense urban areas, um, you know, <laughs> I can't, you're not getting around my, I, I'll, I'll have a, I'll, I'll, I use rideshare all the time, but I still have a big truck. Right? You, yeah, it's not uh, shocking me that you're saying that. I get it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, I still have a big truck and a big dog. And, and yes, I, I have all those things. I'm very, I'm very Texan. Um, but it, it's, uh, the reality is you're going to see, we've already seen in key, in key urban metro areas, key urban metro areas with under 35 year old population in the last, last five years has been a 10% decline in car ownership. Okay. We've already seen it. 10, 10%, like not a small number decline in car ownership. And you're seeing 
something I never thought I would see is teenagers not wanting to get their driver's license. Literally just saying, eh, I'll get to it later. Like I know 19, 20 year olds are still haven't got their license. Like I'll get to it later because they don't have to. I mean, when you look at the cost to insure a 16 year old, it is insane. And if you apply that to rideshare credits, it's really a lot, oftentimes far cheaper. And so rideshare and autonomous driving are changing the game. They, they are, I don't think it's gonna be 2025 like Yamanis is saying. And certainly that if you have a driverless car then you're not worried about coronavirus anymore, right? Uh, and then, and the driverless technology is getting really good. I mean, if you've, if you see, you know, uh, Cadillac has super drive, I mean, Tesla's autopilot. I mean, these are really good systems. Yeah. It's coming. Uh, I mean, it's, it's moving, it's moving way faster than I thought it would. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, we had a whole day of discussions at abundance 360, uh, about repurposing parking garages for residential development, repurpose, repurposing parking, uh, you know, think about gas stations, uh, rethinking convenience stores and gas stations completely. Uh, so from a real estate development perspective, it does require you rethink things. I, I would also say, Steve, you have to acknowledge the effect that a pandemic, the pandemic inalterably changed my grandmother and great grandmother's generation. And this will inalterably change. Our, it, we will not forget this. And so I think that you have to accept that right now in Austin, Texas, the metro area real estate's down 19% and Hayes County where everybody's spread out and has some land real estate's up. Whether you yeah. like it or not, whether you like it or not, people are already making moves to deurbanize. Okay. Yeah. So whether you, you can, you can say, no, 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 no. That's just temporary. Ah, man, I, 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 I gotta tell you, I like, I like living on a little bit of land. I like not being in a major urban dense metro area. And you, you look at who's getting really, really hit by this virus. It's dense urban areas where everybody's stacked on top of each other. And so I think something else you have to acknowledge other than the driverless economy, the carless economy is the fact that people are already, the real estate market is already doing this. It's already de-urbanizing. So, um, and and look, there was a really fascinating survey, Steve, uh, last week in Silicon Valley that said 75% of the survey respondents who were software developers in Silicon Valley said if their companies allowed them to work from home, they would immediately leave San Francisco and Silicon Valley. I, I, without, I without a question, they were yeah. gone. They were done. They were going to leave. And so, you, you're... It, you know, you got, there's going to, there is a big shift going on and we just haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think people will really rethink if you like in the Vancouver area, you could live on islands. Now if work from home is a thing, you, why not go be at a lake house or somewhere else instead of being necessary, like right in the downtown core. Um, so I know we got six more minutes here. I want to hit you with a couple, a uh, couple more questions. There's a few more that have come in from the group. Andy Meadows, good old Andy's asked a couple of questions. From Austin, Texas, he's uh, one of his questions. What, what's the biggest gap in construction technology in 2020, like right now? Yeah, I mean, we still are having a problem getting full adoption of virtual design and construction. There's a lot of people still making excuses as to why you can't build the building virtually and then physically. There's still a lot of what I call paper napkin construction where it's, we'll figure it out in the field. 
rush through a drawing set, go, get to groundbreaking, and then figure it out as you go, which is a way more expensive way of building a building. I mean, way more expensive. And so, Andy, uh, by the way, good to see you. Uh, I think that's one of the, uh, the big challenges is getting full, I mean, 100%, 95% adoption of VDC principles, virtual design and construction. And that means build the building digitally and then build it physically. Work out the problems digitally. Work out uh, that, that, oh, by the way, that air conditioning duct can't run through that plumbing pipe before you start building. Because once you start building, that's a $30,000 fix. Before you start building, it's a $300 fix. And so that's really where construction costs overwhelm building owners, overwhelm real estate developers, and their investments go sour because they run into things that were preventable mistakes. And so to me, that's still the biggest gap is we have a lot of you know, there's an old phrase. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sanitize an old phrase. Excuses are like elbows. Everybody's got them. Um, you know, everybody's got an excuse as to why they can't build virtually first. And the reality is, there's very few excuses why you can't do it. And you want to get it done. You need owners, real estate developers, and investors have to demand that the building be built virtually, and they have to be patient enough to wait for it to get done because you have to know that your total project timeline will be shorter short, will be shorter, and your total cost will, will be lower if it's done correctly. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, here's one about uh, 3D printing. What can you 3D print um, and what do you think will potentially be the new things that you can 3D print as, as far as it comes to housing? This, the guy put doors, question mark, walls, question mark, mechanical components, all of the above. So right now, the vast majority of experiments, and I, I really like what APIS Core is doing, A-P-I-S-C-O-R, APIS Core. Uh, they are using a rotary 3D printer to, to print a proprietary concrete mix, and they're printing uh, walls and floors. Uh, the, the Philippines has been, Steve, this is an area of your, your personal interest. The Philippines has been another area of experimenting with building hotel suites. So they use traditional construction for the, 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 the structure, the superstructure and the, the floors, and then they're 3D printing interior walls, and they're even 3D printing bathtubs in place uh, in hotels in the Philippines. So that, that's really what you're seeing is the larger stuff get 3D printed out of concrete mixes. Uh, if you remember Happy Gilmore, they said it's all in the hips, Happy, it's all in the hips. It's all in the mix with concrete 3D printing. You have to have the right concrete mix for it to work, uh, but it does work. Um, we're seeing a lot of concrete form, formwork guys will 3D print their formwork to scale and they'll practice putting their formwork together before they go do it. So they'll do like a, like a to scale plastic model and then they'll go 3D print, then, then they'll go use traditional formwork. So you're seeing 3D printing being used for modeling like scale models to practice putting it together and then traditional construction. You're also seeing uh, the Chinese, the Russians, uh, Dubai, I mean, all experimenting with 3D printing concrete. And then you've seen the Australians with, with fast brick 3D printing using concrete blocks. So they're manufacturing the block and then they're 3D printing essentially like a Lego set. Uh, that's that's really what I'm seeing. And you can imagine if you can 3D print the walls and floors in a matter of a day or two, uh, that's a game changer for a job site. Even if you still have to stub out and do all the electrical, mechanical and plumbing. That Electrical, mechanical and plumbing, I'm not sure I'm gonna see that 3D printed. We're probably going to 3D print the the docks and the areas they're going to go into, and they'll still come to install prefabbed electrical, mechanical, and plumbing. So they'll prefab that off-site instead of doing it on-site. So I still think that'll be made. They'll be manufactured 
uh, and then they'll 3D print the buildings and then they'll, they'll wed the two together afterwards. That's kind of how I see it. Cool. Gotcha. So maybe one last question here before we wrap it up. And this has been um, awesome. Thanks for doing it. Um, this one just literally came in the last second here. Um, how do you get those old school paper napkin developers to change when they've been so successful for so many years and generally uh, resistant to change? Yeah, they're generally resistant to change because uh, building the building industry is Oh, uh, it's stressful, fraught with risk, high risk, high stress. Um, and generally they've, they've dialed in a way of doing things where they know they can deliver and they can make decent money and they get comfortable. And I say this often, comfort is the enemy of, of, uh, of progress because you get, you, you start making, let's say you're a construction company owner, you start making three, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars a year. You get pretty comfortable. And so the way I've been able to get a lot of those guys off of center is to show them how they can make a million or a million five. Like you have to show them the money. If you don't show the builders a path to more profits, you're not gonna get a lot of technology adoption. And one of the challenges I've seen with owners is they want, they want to absorb all the benefit of the contractor adopting technology. In other words, they just wanna see a drastic reduction in construction costs. They wanna see the builder make the same amount of money. Well, guess what guys? That doesn't work that well for them. You know, to, to quote, to quote um, Jerry Maguire, Jerry, you got to show me the money, right? And so if you can show your builder how they can make more profit, bottom line cash on the job by adopting technology, then they'll be down with it. But the number one question I get from builders, these paper napkin builders is why am I, and they said this to me in, in hundreds of conferences, James, why am I going to go do all this if all it's going to do is drive my, my client's cost down and not make me any more money? And, and they've got a valid point. I mean, let's be honest. They've got a valid point. So I'm a big fan, by the way, of a different contracting method. I believe in CM at risk, construction manager at risk contracts, not hard bid, low bid. Hard bid, low bid is a terrible way to build a building. Hard bid, low bid does not result in the lowest total cost of ownership for you because those contractors make it up on change orders and they nail you to the wall on change orders. That's where they make their profit. So, you know, CM at risk is a much better contracting method that allows the owner and the builder to share in the risk and to share in the reward together. When you have a contract that's structured for shared risk, shared reward, right? These are shared pains contracts. Uh, then it makes a dramatic difference on the, the builder being bought into adopting technology that's going to benefit the owner, as long as the owner is willing to share in the rewards and the, and the pain. Yeah. So, so everybody. That wraps another episode of the Addy podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe to get the next episode. For more information, visit addyinvest.com. Until next time.